Y'all turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Philippians 3, 1 through 14. We continue our series about joy. About the joy that comes uh, from the God who made us. And I'm going to start today by saying something you probably thought you would never hear in a church. Are you ready? Religion won't make you happy. Religion won't make you happy. You can try. You can, I, I encourage you, come to church every time the doors are open. That's a great thing. Give 10% of your income just like the Word of God commands and then some. Study the Word of God. Pray. Talk to others about Jesus. Do all those things that the Bible tells us to do. Do your best to obey the commands. Avoid the vices. Do the right things. All those are good. None of them will make you happy. They, even won't, they won't even get you to heaven. See, Paul is writing from a prison cell, and he's writing, and when he gets to this passage we're going to look at today, which is my favorite in the whole book of Philippians, and Philippians is my favorite letter of Paul, he's going to tell us about the fruitlessness of religion without Jesus, how religion on its own will not do. So let's take a look at what he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those, those mutilators of the flesh. Now, let's hold on for just a second. He's just thrown out some pretty serious charges. Who's he talking about there? You have to keep in mind, when Jesus came, he spoke to Jews. He was the fulfillment of every prophecy in the Old Testament. The only people who paid attention to that stuff were fellow Jews. So the original followers of Jesus were all Jewish, 100% Jewish. The early church was 100% Jewish. The day of Pentecost, only Jews praised Jesus' name. Only Jews got baptized that day in the name of Jesus. But over the years to come, something interesting happened, starting with a guy named Cornelius who was evangelized by Peter, but then moving on from there, Paul and Barnabas and others would go out throughout the Roman world and they'd take this gospel about Jesus to all the cities they could reach. And an interesting thing happened. A strictly Jewish movement following the Jewish Messiah suddenly became overwhelmingly Gentile in nature. Even by that second generation of Christians, there were more Gentiles than Jews in the church. And that bothered some of the Jewish believers. And it's not that they're especially racist. All of us just tend to like being around our own kind. We're fine with someone from another kind, quote unquote, coming into our group. But if we start to get the impression there's going to be more of them than us, we start to feel a little bit threatened. That's not the way it should be. And in Christ, we should be different than that. But that's the way we tend to be. And that's what was happening in the early church. So what the response of some of the Jewish Christians was, not all, not even most, but some, is they began to go around to the different Gentile churches preaching to them and saying, listen, you guys, congratulations on meeting Jesus, but you're not really part of the family of God, you know. In order to be part of the family of God, you've got to become a child of Abraham. You've got to follow the law of Moses. That means that you men have to be circumcised. Circumcision, by the way, if you don't know what circumcision is, ask your mother. <laughs> But circumcision was, uh, was a ritual that males had to undergo in order to become part of Israel. And so these Jewish, I mean, these Gentile believers were, got, were like, oh, goodness, I got to do that. Well, I don't want to go to hell. I, I don't want to miss Jesus. So, And Paul's writing to say, don't mutilate your flesh for the sake of law. 
That was something that had a purpose. That, that ritual of, of, of circumcision had a purpose when Moses gave it. But Jesus came along and superseded all that. So what Paul's saying is, don't trust in religion when you've already got Jesus. You don't need all that other stuff. You've got him. So all that, that's my long explanation for verse 2. He goes on and says, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. When he says confidence in the flesh, he's talking about things we can do. In other words, religious acts. We don't put confidence in that. We don't walk around saying, because I gave my 10%, because I showed up in church, because I memorized the scripture, because I abstained from this evil deed, therefore God accepts me. We don't put confidence in that. He says, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Now hold on, Paul's saying, you want to talk, you want to, you want to have a shooting match on this? You want to talk who's better at being religious and being moral? I bet I can beat every one of you. And Paul's about to set out his resume. Now, let's be frank. If you and I, any of us, if we decided, okay, I'm going to try to top everybody else, we all would have some area in which we think we're pretty good, right? Something that we take great pride in. And if you're a person who's successful in the business world, you might want to list um, the businesses you've begun or um, the clients you've won for your business. Or you, may, you might list your salary or your title. If you're a very intelligent, educated person, you might list the degrees you've earned and your GPA and your, you know, the, the uh, publications you've published in or something like that. Maybe your IQ. If you're a physically fit person, you might want to talk about how much you can bench press or how fast you can run a 5K or, or your body fat percentage. But for Paul, Paul was part of a culture in which nothing was valued more than your faithfulness to God and your loyalty to the nation of Israel. That meant more than anything else. So what Paul's about to list is, he's going to say, I'm the best Jew there is. I'm the best Israelite there is. Let me show you why. He says, if anyone thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. In regard to zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Paul says, I'm a genuine, 100% complete Israelite man, and I'm a Pharisee. I'm part of the strictest sect of our religion. Not only that, if you followed me around and examined my life 24-7, you would not find fault with the way I live. I follow the commands of the law perfectly. And on top of that, I was so zealous for my faith in God, that when I heard there was a group of people worshiping a crucified man who they claimed was Messiah, when everyone knows that the law of Moses said, cursed is anyone who is hung upon a tree, it made me so angry, angry on behalf of God, on behalf of Israel, that I became violent against them. You know that if you're a, a terrorist, you think you're doing it in the name of God. That was Paul. He was convinced, I am committing violence in the name of God because of my zeal for his name. I am a true hero of the faith. And others saw him that way. He didn't just say, see himself that way. People within Israel saw him that way. But listen to what he says in verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. 
What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing great greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish or garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. So Paul hits this turning point where he says, I no longer value the things I used to value. I'm not even willing to brag about the things that I used to think were so great. Now I consider those flaws in my character. Religion that I was so steeped in, that I was so committed to and invested in, religion led me to do things that today I am ashamed of. It didn't make me happy. It made me a monster. But now I've found Jesus. I found the source of all joy. And now I have what I've always been looking for. And still I want more of him. He goes on in verse 12. I love this part. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. What Paul is talking about is a relationship with a real person that is everything that religion is not. That everything that religion is cracked up to be but is not. That relationship is what he has found. What he was looking for within his religion before. And by the way, and by the way, it's not that Paul had the wrong religion. He was worshiping the one true God. He was following the law that God gave. So don't come at me with any of this. Yeah, Paul, Paul couldn't find happiness in religion, but I'm in the right religion. Have you ever heard the saying, smile and the world smiles with you, frown and the world knows you're a Baptist? You ever heard that? Well, you probably should have, okay? There are plenty of devout Baptists and devout other kinds of Christians who are miserable people. So being religious alone won't do it. My point today, and what we're going to talk about the rest of our time together is, you need to ask yourself, do I have a relationship with a living Savior, or am I merely religious? I'm not, I'm not trying to question your salvation. Although in a crowd this size, there are likely to be a handful at least of people who've been trusting in religion have never really confessed their sins before God and, and gotten right with Christ. And it would be an amazing thing if someone who's been a member of a church all their lives came forward today and said, I, I, I now realize I, I need to con- I need to con- confess my sins and, and repent and get right with the Lord. And that could just open the floodgates. But That's not what I'm trying to do here. What I'm trying to do is get God's people to say, you know, there was a time when I pursued Christ. But here lately, I've just been checking off boxes. Okay, I went to church this week. Okay, I I read my little devotional book. That's enough. I don't have to think about God the rest of the day. Yeah, I, I said my prayers. Okay, I gave my offering. Leave me alone. I did my volunteer time, my once a month volunteer time. That's enough. Or whatever your religious activity happens to be. You check those boxes and you say, okay, I'm done with God until I need him. Now it's about me. You're merely religious. You're trusting in that rather than pursuing him. 
and experiencing joy. Is that the case with you? Because here's the thing. There are four things we see in Paul in in this passage. Four things that are true of you too if you're really pursuing Christ. Four things. You ready? Number one, it's costly. If you're really in a relationship with Christ, it's going to be costly. He says in verse 8, for whose sake I have lost all things. That was not hyperbole. If you know anything about the life of Paul, you know that the day he accepted Jesus was the best day of his life. It was also the end of everything that he once valued. Here was a guy who once was the hero of Israel, the rising star within Judaism, Israel's golden boy. Now he's considered a traitor by his own people. Do you know why Paul was in prison? He wasn't in prison because the Romans hated him. The Romans didn't even know who Paul was. The Romans arrested Paul because he went to Jerusalem and some of his fellow Jews attacked him and tried to kill him. And the Romans rescued him and said, there must be something wrong with this guy. If everybody wants to kill him, let's throw him in jail until we figure it out. That was Roman justice. Then Paul realized if I stay in a jail in Jerusalem, they're going to break in and and lynch me. So he appealed to Caesar. Since Paul happened to be a, a citizen of Rome, he had the right to appeal to Caesar and they transferred him to Rome. That's why he was in jail because his own people wanted to kill him. He had lost all things for the sake of Christ. He talks about in verse 10, I want to participate in his sufferings. I want to suffer alongside Jesus. And you might say, well, but isn't grace free? Isn't my salvation free of charge? Doesn't God accept me as I am? Absolutely. And hallelujah. God saves you just as you are, but thank God he doesn't leave you that way. When Jesus saves you, He begins working on you. He begins transforming you. We've talked about that last week. Remember, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But that's a painful process. Because some some of that process involves you changing and you start to realize that some of the stuff you used to highly value, some of the stuff that you found identity in, well, you can't hold on to that stuff anymore and still follow Jesus. And you find out that some of the goals and the dreams and the plans that you used to completely be devoted to, you realize, well, if I aim for that, then I, I can't follow Jesus anymore because he's going this way and, and that, that is that way. And, and you might even lose some relationships. It's not that Jesus calls you to reject people. It's that you start to change and they're not on board and they say, well, I don't, you're not doing the things you used to do. You're not the person you used to be. I don't like who you are now. And you lose some relationships and all of that's painful. All of that feels like death. And yet, here's the good news. As you grow in Christ, you start to realize you're happier without those things. And that person that you were just so in love with before you met Jesus, and you might have married that person someday, and and now you're over here, and and he or she is over there, and you think to yourself, thank God, I I would have been so unhappy, and I would have made him or her unhappy if we'd gotten married. And and that that job you would have taken if you hadn't started following Jesus, but then you realized, well, that's going to mean I'm never with my family, and I'm never in church, and I'm never never serving God, so I've got to do this instead. You look back, and you realize, I would have been miserable in that job. It would have worked me to death. And those habits you drop and those, those values you change, you look back and you say, I'm so joyful because Christ has, has stripped away some things that I used to think were important. You realize you're happy, happier without those things. In fact, Paul will say, as he's talking about the things he's lost, he'll say, I now consider them garbage. And this is true, guys. In the original Greek, the English translators are kind of, uh, you know, they try to 
kind of nice this up, but in the original Greek, he uses the word, the Greek word that translates dung. He uses the word poop, basically, whatever the Greek word is for that. Um, he, he says, I consider them a big pile of poop. It's just, that's what it is. And, and so now you're like, okay, that's now my number two favorite verse of Paul, right? <laughs> Thank you for getting my humor. I, I, I drove home from New Orleans with two 14-year-old boys. So uh, has your faith in Christ cost you anything? If it has, then that's a sign you're in a real relationship. Secondly, it's making you more humble. See, religion doesn't do that. Religion makes us proud. It makes us arrogant. It makes us self-righteous. It makes us judgmental. Why? Because we compare ourselves to others. We look at our friends who are sleeping late on a Sunday morning and we say, look at me. I got up early. You're still in bed. We, we look at, at people at a sporting event and they're drunk and they're acting like idiots and we think, well, you know, look at me. I, I'm doing right. You know, our, our friend uh, has an affair and, and ruins his marriage, and we say, well, look at me, I'm faithful. We compare ourselves in so many ways. We watch TV and we see the lifestyles of these celebrities, and we say, well, I'm glad I'm not like that. That's what religion does to us. But following Jesus does the opposite, because Jesus constantly reminds us of how much we need his grace. And you can't, you can't live the gospel and be proud. You can't live the gospel and look at anybody else and say, well, I'm better than him. Jesus told over and over again, his disciples, the, the constant message was, if you want to be first, you've got to be last. If you want to be great, you've got to put others ahead of yourself. The greatest among you will be the servant. He told this famous story about how one day a man went to the temple and this man happened to be a Pharisee. So obviously a very devout man. And he goes in as he, as he kneels to pray, he notices there's a guy also praying in that temple who's a tax collector. And nobody was more loathed in Jewish society than the tax collector who made a fortune through fleecing his neighbors for the benefit of the hated Roman army, Roman empire. And, and so this Pharisee kneels in prayer and he says to God, and, and I quote, he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, unjust, swindlers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And Jesus Jesus shows us that, and, and everyone who heard that parable would have said at that point, well, yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. He is better than that tax collector. He does deserve to pray that prayer. But then Jesus switches viewpoints, and we hear the prayer of the tax collector himself who prays, and I quote, God, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. And Jesus said, that is the man who walked out of that temple justified that day, because God exalts the humble and humbles the exalted. See, Paul came out of an environment in which Jewish men like himself used to wake up every day and the first thing they'd say is, God, I thank you that you have not made me a Gentile or a woman. That was his daily prayer. At least I'm not one of those. I'm, I'm better. And now he prays a different prayer. In verse 9, he says, not having a righteousness of my own. What he's saying is, all that scripture I memorized, all those times I was faithfully in the synagogue on the Sabbath day and, and 
kept myself from working when I could have made a profit. All those times I sacrificed in the temple. All those times I advocated for the sake of God in the marketplace and corrected others and taught others. All those things I placed before you and in your eyes, it's nothing. That's not my righteousness. The righteousness I possess comes straight through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not my righteousness at all. It's his The only righteousness I have is what he gave to me by his grace. You see the humility in that? Paul can never from that day forward, when he has that mindset, he can never from that day forward look down on any other human being. The most reprobate person he knows, he can't look at him and say, well, what a sinner. Because Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. Look what it cost Jesus to save me. See, humility doesn't mean you think less of yourself. I want you to understand that. Humility doesn't think you're down on yourself or, or you see yourself as worthless. A humble person can ha- should have and does have a wonderful self-image. They're aware that they're made in the image of God. They're aware that God has placed in them gifts and resources and abilities to do great things. No, the humble person doesn't think less of himself. The humble person just thinks of himself less. They're just not stuck on themselves. They don't have to win the argument. They don't have to get the last word. They don't have to get their way. They don't have to be the center of attention. They are happy focusing on others in the name of Christ. And is that happening in your life? Are you becoming more humble? Because if you are, it's only through the grace of God because you're following Jesus Christ. Third thing, if you have a real relationship with Jesus, it produces power in your life. Verse 10, he talks about, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. And that doesn't mean that Paul thinks that all believers in Jesus should be able to work miracles. Paul could at times. The apostles could at times. When you read the Bible, not every biblical character worked miracles. It it sort of was concentrated in, in certain eras of scriptural history. And today, as far as I know, no one in this room can still a storm or or heal a sick person. If you can do those things, then use them for God's glory. If God ever gives you one of those gifts, hallelujah. But in the meantime, what does Paul mean when he says we should know the power of his resurrection? I think it's what he talks about in Romans 8, where he lists all these things in this world that conspire to keep us from living the Christian life. And then he says, but in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, the person who knows Jesus has resurrection power at work in his life, and that means he can overcome anything. That means that bad circumstances don't get her down. That means that sin doesn't cling to him. He moves on. He moves forward past his sin and and doesn't commit it anymore. That means her prayers get answered. Not every prayer, but enough prayers that people come to know, hey, if I want to get something done, I go talk to her. I, let, I make sure she's praying for me because she gets things done on her knees. It means that Christians who know him are transformed, that they're inspired, that when they spend a few minutes around him, they walk away ready to give their lives to Christ. And non-Christians who know her, they're like, I want what she has. That's the power that we're talking about. The resurrection power means you live a victorious life. It means you drive the devil crazy because he can't beat you no matter what he tries. And if you've got that going on in your life, if there's signs of power, if you can say, I don't know where this came from, it just happened, and I'm glad, then that's because of Jesus. That's because you're following him. By the way, Unfortunately, a lot of us are more like the kid that I heard about who every day this, this big kid at school would beat him up and steal his lunch money. 
So he decided he was going to go get some martial arts training. He was going to fight back. And, and he walked down the street to a, a place where they were teaching jujitsu and karate and, and taekwondo. And he went and he talked to the people. He found out how much it cost. The next day at school, kids saw him handing his lunch money to the bully. And they, they went up and they said, what are you doing? I thought you were going to get trained. I thought you were going to fight back. He said, I figured out. I did the math. It's actually cheaper to pay the bully. <laughs> Sadly, that's a lot of us as Christians. We're just letting the devil have his way in our lives. Even though, even though we've got the resurrection power on our side, we've just figured, you know, I've done the math. I don't really want to do the work of a real relationship where you actually confess your sins, where you constantly rely on him, where you're at his beck and call, where he, he, can, he can tell you, go this, go do this, and you will. I, I just want to do the easy thing. I just want to check off a few religious boxes so I can, I can just move on with life. It's cheaper to pay the bully. Yeah, it's cheaper. It's nowhere near as enjoyable. Finally, this is going to sound redundant, and maybe it is, but if, if you have a real relationship with Jesus, it is a real relationship. It's going to feel like a relationship. Have you ever had a friendship with someone that just lit your life on fire in a good way, where, where every time you saw them, your, your eyes lit up, your, your heart beat faster, where you couldn't wait to see them again, where y'all just couldn't stop talking to one another? Have you ever met someone who just brightened your day? Jesus is that person. Jesus is the friend you've always been looking for. And if, if you have a real relationship with him, then you have a passion for more of him. Paul writes in verse 12, not that I have already obtained all this. What does he mean, all this? He's talking about knowing Jesus. Yeah, I know Jesus, but I don't know him as well as I want to. Not that, I've, not that I'm perfect. I'm nowhere near perfect. Boy, I'm way better than I used to be. But I'm not perfect yet. I'm still striving for that. And then he gets into that, that last section that I love so much, forgetting what lies behind, pressing forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. When he talks about straining toward what is ahead, you get the image of a runner, and, and he's been running for miles, and, and the finish line is still a few miles away. And instead of saying, I've really run hard, I've run way more than anybody else I know, no, he pushes himself. He pushes. He keeps on pushing. He's straining for the goal. What Paul is saying here is, I don't want to just run the race. I don't just want to go away and, and be able to wear that T-shirt that says Jerusalem 5K, right? I want to win the thing. And, and he doesn't mean I want to beat all the other runners. I want to beat the person I would have been without Jesus. I want to be all that Christ has called me to be. Don't you think it's noteworthy that when Paul is about to die, he writes, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He, he did what he said. Are you doing that? What's the passion of your life? Because there's lots of passions that can motivate us. There are people here who are achievers by nature, and, and your passion is, I want to accomplish great things. I want to be the top of my field. I want to be the top of my class. Maybe that's your passion. You're just, you're just driven. Or maybe you're a person who has, uh, who has an, an innate desire to have lots and lots of friends, and so you want to be popular. Your passion is, is getting to know people and having them like you. Now, there's some of that in me, so I identify. Or maybe your passion is rest. 
Maybe your passion is, I want to get away from all that stuff. I want to get out on that golf course. I want to get out on that lake. I want to get into that store and buy the stuff I enjoy buying or whatever your passion, whatever your hobby is. Some people are so passionate about what they enjoy. And none of those things, honestly, none of those things are bad in and of themselves, but none of those things will fulfill you. And I'm here to tell you, Jesus is the only food you'll ever try that fulfills you completely and leaves you wanting more. The bread of life is the only meal you'll ever eat that satisfies you totally and you want more. So pursue him. Make that your passion. When I was a kid, my parents took me to the beach, my brother and I, um, and I remember this was one of many times we went to the beach, but this one sticks in my mind because when we first got there, we hadn't even gotten in the water yet, and we saw some people from my hometown. They were driving around in a pickup truck full of inner tubes, and they threw one to me and one to my brother and said, hey, just bring them back to us when you get home. So my brother and I rode those inner tubes on the waves all day long. And part of the time we tried to surf, you know, trying to surf on an inner tube in the waves. It was, it was interesting, but, but you know, we were kids. We just kept at it, kept at it. Sometimes we'd just get tired of that. And we'd lay back and just let the waves rock us. I tell you, when I went to bed that night, and usually as a kid, I, I just couldn't get to sleep, but then I, I went right to sleep because you get worn out. Uh, out on the waves, right? But when I went to sleep that night, I could still feel the waves rocking me. It's one of those great memories from my childhood. So years later, when I had my first child, uh, and so Kaylee was just a little bitty girl, three or four years old. Now, when we took her to the beach for the very first time, I decided, well, I was going to give her that kind of experience. So I, I went to one of those little surf shops. She was too small for an inner tube, but I bought her one of those little floaties where you can put her legs through, right? And she wouldn't fall through. And I took her out into the waves and I just pulled her along, pulled her along. And I said, okay, get ready because here comes a big one. And the big one came and guess what happened? It flipped her over on her head. And she came up just sputtering and spewing and crying. And from then on, she wanted nothing to do with the water. And she sat the rest of the day at the edge of the water with her toes, with the, the waves just kind of lapping at her toes. And she was building sandcastles. And I was out there in the, in the water all day going, come on, Kaylee, just try it again. Trust me, this time I won't let you flip, but just come on out here. This is where the fun is. But she wouldn't come. And I'm telling you, that's what Jesus is saying to you today. You may be the kind of person who's never even gotten into the water of Jesus Christ. You may be a person who's checking this whole Christianity thing out. Or you may be a person who's just got a little toe in it. You've accepted Christ. You've been baptized. You come to church occasionally, but it hasn't really changed your life. Maybe you're ankle deep. Maybe you're hip deep. Wherever you are in Jesus, I promise you, Jesus is saying, come on in. Come on further. The joy is out here where I am. You know, the thing about the waves is they keep pushing us back. You know, my son Will and I were just laughing about Jerry Seinfeld talks about the funny thing about surfing is it's like the ocean keeps throwing you back out and you keep going back in. Well, that's what Jesus is doing for us. Life keeps pushing us away from him, but we've got to fight. We've got to fight to pursue him. And when we do, that's when we find the joy. Don't settle for less. Don't settle for ankle deep. Don't settle for hip deep. Keep pushing forward, straining for what lies ahead. The goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In the movie, The Shawshank Redemption, the hero of the story is sent to a very, very tough prison. On his first day there, 
All the new prisoners are lined up and they're standing in front of the warden and the warden gets up and he holds up a Bible and he says, you men need scripture and you need discipline and here you'll get plenty of both, which sounds good, doesn't it? But when you watch the movie, you find out that scripture and discipline together, they don't actually change those men for the better. It becomes a dehumanizing place that kills some and it makes others into warped versions of themselves. And our hero, our, our hero Andy, has to try to escape from this place. See, the good news is that Jesus came down and, and found us in such a place where even those of us who were religious, like Paul, were trapped in prison. A prison of sin and death. That's what man-made religion does. And Jesus freed us from that. He died so we could be the bridge from which we cross into salvation and freedom. And if that's your story, then praise God for it and press on. If you've gotten to the point in your life where you're just checking off religious boxes and you're not pursuing him like you once did, let today be the day you renew that relationship. If you've never escaped from that prison, whether it's a religious prison or any other kind, if you've never found that freedom in Christ, let today be the day of your new life beginning.